This morning we are going to be looking at a text from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. Again, if you're visiting this morning when we read a, a longer passage of Scripture when we're done, uh, I will usually say, this is the Word of God, and then you can reply enthusiastically, thanks be to God. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken away my Lord, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of God. God. Let's pray. God, we ask that you would open the uh, eyes of our hearts, of our minds, that you would speak wisdom to us today. Thank you for your scriptures. Thank you for the, the privilege it is to gather together to worship. Thank you for your presence and your activity in our lives. And again, we thank you for the empty tomb today. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I would consider this story to be uh, surprising. Uh, this, uh, this text that we look at in John chapter 20 is a surprising story, which is maybe not saying anything particularly smart because it's surprising when dead people stop being dead. Would you agree? You, you would be surprised if this happened to you, yes? You don't seem very convinced of that, which makes me think you've had some interesting experiences that you should tell me about later. Most of us, at least, have not seen dead people stop being dead. We would be surprised by that. Um, For some of us this morning, this resurrection surprise is the greatest hindrance to Christianity for us. 
We like Jesus, some of the things he said, but this whole he was dead and came back to life, that's kind of a stretch. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I want to suggest that there are other surprises, though, in this text, in addition to a man who was dead not being dead anymore. There are a couple other, maybe not quite as obvious, surprises. The first one that I want you to see is, is who the central character is in our story today. If you look at who shows up, we see Peter and John. Uh, which, which, by the way, I, I, I love the fact that John, who's writing this, makes sure that we know that he beat Peter to the tomb, right? And not just once, like he works it in twice, which is just like, do with that what you will. Something about male something or other, competitiveness or something. We have these two men, we have Jesus, of course, we have these angels, but who is it that really takes center stage? It's Mary, Mary Magdalene. Now, what do we know about Mary? Not a lot, actually. In fact, in the Gospel of John, she only appears very recently at the foot of the cross with a few others of Jesus' followers. We don't know anything else about her from the Gospel of John. Now, Luke, in his account, he gives us a little bit more detail, telling us that she is someone who had been spiritually oppressed, demon-possessed, and that Jesus had rescued her, had healed her, had liberated her. So we, we know that, and that's really about it specifically. We know that she's a woman, which maybe seems obvious, but to us we need to pay attention to this because, of course, in, in this time, in this place, to be a woman was certainly to be visibly less than a man, was to not have the same place in society. So she experiences uh, this, but she's also a woman with a history and a woman who had known that sort of spiritual affliction, especially in the small towns that she would have come from, she had a, a, a sordid past that was known to people. People labeled her. They, they knew who she was, that woman. It's likely that she's also not a teenager anymore. She's probably a little bit older, which means that she doesn't really have a place in society. You'll remember from uh, uh, Jesus' birth that his mother, Mary, was probably very young. And culturally, this was how it worked. A, a woman reached her teen years and then was betrothed, became engaged to her husband. And after a period of engagement, they were married. So typically, women were married while they were still in their teens. Mary Magdalene, again, from the little detail we know about her, probably is not in her teens anymore. She's older. She's single. She doesn't have a place in society, unless she's a prostitute, in which case she would have a place in society. I mean, to, to be blunt, Mary Magdalene is a very marginalized figure in her, in her place, in her time. And yet she plays this very central role in this story. She is the one who Jesus first appears to. So who would Mary Magdalene be today? From what we know about her, if the resurrection were to happen today, who would Jesus first appear to? In my neighborhood, I, I often walk under a certain viaduct, and nine times out of ten, there is a woman who is uh, currently homeless who is either sitting or sleeping under this viaduct, and she's a very shy person. She won't make eye contact or talk, and 
I know from where she is that literally hundreds of people pass her every, every day. And I wonder, is, is she the one Jesus would appear to today? Would she have encountered Jesus the way that Mary Magdalene had and experienced healing, transformation, hope, validation of her humanity? And would Jesus appear to this woman today before anyone else? The reason we need to see this and be surprised at this is that, well, to be blunt, it's kind of embarrassing to the resurrection story. It doesn't feel embarrassing probably to most of us, but again, in Jesus' day, in the first century Middle East, this is not the way you would try to tell a convincing story. You wouldn't put Mary on the center stage. You wouldn't ask Mary to be the one to, to be the first to testify to something as miraculous as a resurrection. It's surprising that it is in our story, and I would say to you this morning that the only reason Mary is in this story and plays such a prominent role is because she was actually there. It doesn't make sense otherwise. It would have been written out probably otherwise. For those of us this morning who, who come to church and we know a little bit about Christianity, a little bit about the Bible, I want to say to you that the Bible is full of these sorts of things. Things that on the surface don't make sense. That if you were trying to argue somebody to your point of view or to promote a certain ideology, you just wouldn't include. And yet here, the very center of the Christian faith, we find this very important person who testifies to the resurrection. She's there because she was there. Jesus appears to her. The second surprise that I notice also has to do with Mary. And it's this. She doesn't recognize Jesus at first. Did you notice that? Who does she think Jesus is? The gardener. Maybe that would seem like an anomaly, except that we find the same pattern in other and others of the resurrection accounts. So a chapter or so later in John, we see seven of the disciples in a fishing boat. They've gone back to their old jobs. Jesus is dead. They're moving on. They're in their fishing boats. They're not catching any fish. And then there's this person on shore who hollers out to them, hey, boys, any luck? No, not today. Try the other side of the boat. I'm not a, I don't fish, but that's, that doesn't seem like, like real profound advice, right? But they do. They catch a bunch of fish, and it's at that moment that Peter says, it's the Lord. And he jumps in the water, swims to shore, and sure enough, it's Jesus. And then in, in Luke's account, there are these two disciples. We don't know exactly who they are. It's possible they're a husband and wife who have been followers of Jesus, and they're returning home. Again, Jesus is dead. Show's over. Time to move on. And, and as would often be the case in their day, they're walking on this road and, and somebody joins them. And so they're talking, they're talking about what had happened in Jerusalem, about the crucifixion. This person walking with them is, apparently doesn't know anything about it, so he's asking lots of questions. And the day comes to an end, they arrive at their home and they invite this person in with them because it was kind of dangerous to keep traveling at night. And it's only as they're sitting down to dinner that this stranger takes bread and breaks it. 
they realize that they've been walking and talking with Jesus all day long. So there's a pattern here. There's some sort of theme of Jesus being a stranger to those who knew him most. Now, maybe uh, we could chalk up Mary's encounter because she was, you know, she was grieving. She was sad. She was overcome with emotion. Or maybe those seven disciples in the boat, they were just too far away from shore. Well, I don't think that's the case with either one of those. But even then, we are left with two people who spent all day long talking with Jesus. So we're left, I think, asking why. How could this be? Shouldn't they have recognized Jesus? Recognized his voice? What is so significant this morning about Jesus becoming a stranger? Why why do they include this detail, these gospel writers? What is significant about Jesus becoming a stranger? Let me answer this question as succinctly as I can, and then we'll dig in a little bit to why I think this is true. Jesus became a stranger so that you and I would no longer be strangers to God. That makes sense? Jesus became a stranger so that you and I would no longer be strangers to God. Now let me try to explain what I mean by this. The disciples, they thought they knew Jesus. If you remember, most of these disciples had followed Jesus for three years. And they didn't just go to to class with Professor Jesus three days a week. They were with him 24-7. That's what it meant to be a disciple. To watch your rabbi, your teacher. So that you weren't just learning information, but that your life was coming to emulate your rabbi. They knew him, or they thought they knew him. And and what they thought they knew about Jesus is traced to some very specific expectations. Jesus' followers were Jewish. So they had very specific expectations about a Messiah who was going to come. These were a people who had known great oppression. One foreign occupying power after another, occupying their land, their city, their temple. And they were looking for God to send a Messiah, a king, a liberator, a savior from the line of David. And when this happened, when this Messiah came, things were going to change. First, there was going to be a military victory. Rome would be defeated. Second, The exiles would come home. See, there were refugees who had fled from Jerusalem, fleeing persecution, this foreign occupying power. They were in Egypt, many of them. So the hope was that the exiles would come home. And thirdly, the temple would be cleansed. You see, this temple had been built by King Herod, who was kind of a puppet king, a hated figure. He had killed many of the Jewish religious leaders. And so there was the expectation that when Messiah came, the temple would be cleansed. And worship once again would be established. In other words, when the Messiah came, everything would be back to how it was supposed to be. And the people of God would once again hold their heads up knowing who they were, that God lived and dwelt among them. So when Jesus shows up and he starts sounding like Messiah, people have very specific expectations of him. One of the expectations that they did not have however, was that their Messiah would be crucified and then resurrect. 
That was not part of the plan. We need to understand this because the reality is that first century Jewish people were no more likely than 21st century American people to believe that somebody who was dead was going to stop being dead. We need to understand that because some of us, if we're not careful, we can carry a little bit of, let's say, uh, cultural arrogance when we come to the Bible. Or maybe just some historical ignorance. So we can look at a story like this and we can say, well, they would believe in the resurrection. They, just, they weren't as scientifically savvy as we are. They believed in magic and spirituality, which is really different from our culture, right? The reality is, is that nobody in Jesus' day was looking for a resurrection. Nobody. Now, there was a developing theology of resurrection. Some Jewish leaders were saying there was going to come a day when all of God's people together at the same time would be resurrected to glory. But that was off in the distance, and that would be all of us together. Nobody is looking for a dead Messiah to come back to life. You see... This wasn't part of the plan. This wasn't part of the script. In fact, there were plenty of other messiahs who were dead. There are historical sources outside of the the Bible who show us and give the names of these messiahs, people who claimed to be sent from God, come to drive out the Romans. And the same thing happened to all of them. It's the same thing that happened to Jesus. They were captured, tortured, and crucified. And then their followers went home. End of the story. Because a dead Messiah is a failed Messiah. Right? Nobody's expecting the Messiah to come back to life. Now maybe, closest closest possibility would be that the, the failed Messiah would have a brother. Right? And the followers would go, well, I guess we got it wrong by a sibling. So, so I guess you're it. Right? But Jesus had brothers. Jesus has a brother named James who ends up being a leader in the Jerusalem church. Nobody's pointing to any of Jesus' brothers saying, oh, no, no, that, that was actually the Messiah. I just, I, I want you to see there's no precedent for the resurrection. Are you with me? No one's expecting this. These are not naive, gullible people. They're just as smart, just as savvy as any of us in the room today. We shouldn't I think, fault the disciples for having expectations put on Jesus. It's a human instinct, I would say, to search for God. And some of us would put it that bluntly. Others of us would talk about searching for meaning or searching for peace or searching for stability or searching for hope or searching for love. But there's something, there's a searching instinct in the human heart that reaches out for something beyond ourselves. When we make this search, we do what the disciples did, is that we search for a God who we make in our own image. We search for a God who we think will meet our needs, our expectations. And of course, when we imagine a God as we want Him to be, He will always be a God who remains a stranger to us. A God who is fashioned in our own image is not, after all, God product of our imagination. So wouldn't, wouldn't it be just easier if those disciples, they had just set aside their expectations? 
Couldn't they have just seen Jesus for who he really was if they had been able to do that? Just kind of start with a, a blank slate. Jesus, just show us who you are. Couldn't they have gotten it quicker if they had done that? There's a text in Jeremiah chapter 17 that says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. This is the dilemma for us, is that we're actually not able to set aside our expectations, our assumptions, our perspective, our sinfulness, and just come to God with a pure perspective and just see God for who God is, to search on our own, to reach out and to discover God because we are starting from this neutral place, this clean slate. The heart, the Bible tells us, is deceitful. In other words, we carry baggage, we carry sin, we carry selfishness. So every time we search for God, we search for a God through our own lens, our own perspective, and of our own making. Are you still with me? So we don't fault the disciples for what they did. They just did what we do. They just happened to do it in their specific place, in their culture, in their context. We would have done no differently. So what happens when Mary and John and Peter come to the tomb? I think that when they come and they see the empty tomb, they see the the cloths laying there, they begin to realize that Jesus was not who they thought he was. Or, Or maybe we could say it this way, Jesus was more, much more than they thought he was. Something begins to shift for them. John records his own experience In verse 8, he says that John saw and believed. What did he see? He saw the empty tomb. That was enough for John. He just needed to see the empty tomb, the grave cloths laying there. And he believed. What did he believe? We're not told exactly, but I wonder if for John, he begins to understand that Jesus had not come to help us with our search for God. But that, in fact, in Jesus, God had come searching for us. I wonder if John realized that, oh, it wasn't that Jesus came to assist me in finding God, in helping me find God, reach God, but in fact, in Jesus, God came searching for me. He was more than I thought he was. Jesus' mission was not to liberate one specific people from one specific enemy. His mission is to rescue humanity from everything that has ever kept us from God, from everything that has ever made us strangers to God. Our sin, our rebellion, addiction, dysfunction, selfishness, pride have all kept us as strangers to God. And it's today, it's on Easter Sunday, when we recognize that the Son of God who became a stranger so that we would no longer be strangers to our God. Think for a minute of Jesus' life. He lived his entire life as a stranger. His own disciples who knew him best are constantly misunderstanding him. The religious leaders accuse him of being in league with the devil. The crowds think that he's an insurgent king one moment and a heretic deserving death the next. His entire life, Jesus lives as a stranger, as an outsider. So when the disciples encountered the resurrected Jesus, they realized that this man is not who they expected. 
he had been a stranger to them the whole time. Jesus could not be contained by their agenda. Jesus would not conform to their priorities for him. And he sure wasn't going to facilitate their plans for their lives. Instead, Jesus was going to accomplish a victory, no matter what the cost, that would ensure that you and I would never again be strangers to our God. His death and resurrection would rescue us from ourselves and from our enemies, from everything that has kept us from God. Do you have expectations about Jesus, about God? You do. I do. We're no different than the disciples. Some of us this morning expect that Jesus is going to make my life better. And I define better by my own definition, of course. Jesus will make my life better. Bring me what I want, the job I want, the spouse I want, the child I want, the stability I want, the home I want. Can we go on and on? Jesus will do these things for me. Others of us this morning, we come slightly more skeptical. We're happy to look at Jesus as a source of inspiration who maybe has some teachings that can help me navigate this life. We have these expectations. But certainly Jesus would not be someone who wants to give me a new identity, someone worthy of my allegiance, someone who's capable of changing my life. Here's the thing. Peter and John and Mary, they came to see that all of their expectations about Jesus had been way too small. You and I need to come to see the same thing. That your expectations of who Jesus is, of what Jesus is about, are way too small. Amen? I wonder if this is why Mary doesn't recognize Jesus immediately. I wonder, has something about Jesus himself changed or is that, is that she is seeing him now with completely new eyes? So that it takes her a moment. Maybe she's remembering back to Philip's question to Jesus. Philip, one of the disciples, asked Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. In other words, show us God. And that will be enough for us. Searching after God. Trying to reach God. Find God. What does Jesus say to Philip? Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, and then anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Philip, you've seen the Father. You've encountered God because you have encountered me. So I wonder if Mary, if as, as she sees Jesus and doesn't recognize him, I wonder if she's kind of doing this whole computing thing in her head, trying to figure this out. And maybe she's becoming aware that the man who she has followed, trusted, learned from, and placed her hope in is actually God. God come to find Mary. And because Jesus took on her flesh and her form, 
She could know in that moment absolute certainty that this God knew her, cared for her, loved her, and as was evidenced by the nail wounds in his hands and feet, would let nothing separate her from his love. Jesus became a stranger so that we would no longer be strangers to God. And when you and I find ourselves before God, who is no longer distant, but close, no longer a stranger, but intimate, we will find that every one of our petty and selfish expectations of this God must burn away. We come to this God without expectations. We come to this God simply as allowing this God to give us new expectations. So I want to say to you this morning that Jesus is more than we think he is, and his purposes for our lives and for our world are far greater than we have ever imagined. This is what the disciples are figuring out when they come to this empty tomb. So how do we know How do we know if we are living as friends of God or as strangers to God? Let me try to to answer this uh, practically in two different ways. Two different ways that you and I can look at our own lives and ask whether or not we are truly experiencing friendships with God or whether we're living still as though we are strangers to our God. Here's the first one. The first way we can know that we are no longer strangers to God is that we do not work to define or defend ourselves any longer. We can know that we are not strangers to God when we stop working to define and defend ourselves. Many of us have this expectation that that being a Christian means trading a life of interest and fulfillment and excitement for something, can we be honest, boring? Anybody? Anybody? This is not what happens when Mary and the rest of the disciples encounter the resurrected Jesus. See, they're no longer encountering the Jesus that they had made in their own image. They're encountering God. So so think about Mary for a moment. Mary, Mary is not only the first person to encounter the resurrected Jesus. She's the first person who Jesus speaks to and then sends, commissions. So so I I, I don't think it's a stretch to say that Mary Magdalene is the first apostle. She's the first preacher. She's the first missionary. She's the first witness. She runs back and she tells the disciples everything that Jesus had said to her. This woman who had been invisible to those around her, marginalized to the world, overlooked, you see, encounters Jesus and is given new life, new purpose, new mission, new vision, new dignity. See, Mary encounters a God who completely loves her, who completely accepts her. So she doesn't need to define herself. God has defined who she is. 
She doesn't need to defend herself because God has defeated all of her enemies. Are you working to define yourself? Do you need to defend yourself? Let me read for you a a longish quote here from a guy by the name of Rowan Williams who until recently was the Archbishop of Canterbury of the Anglican Church. This is kind of long, so stick with me here. Jesus communicates to me the truth that I am accepted and forgiven absolutely so that there is no need for my ego to compensate for its privation by the depriving of others. In other words, I don't have to compensate for myself by depriving other people. The want to dominate and diminish is rooted in ignorance of God as Father. When that illusory want is done away with, my desire is set free. For what? I am entitled to want, to care about the healing and fulfillment of the whole of my human world. My desire is translated into compassion. My desire is set free. I am entitled to want, to care about the healing and the fulfillment of the whole of my human world. In other words, when God is no longer a stranger to us, we are released from every need to defend and to define ourselves. And so we are set free. We're liberated to participate in the healing of the world. Have you been freed from your ego? From your need to justify yourself? From your need to accomplish no matter the consequences? from your need to be judged worthy by your friends and your family. If you have, if you know this freedom, if God is no longer a stranger to you, then you are free to give yourself to the healing of the world, to God's mission in this world. And so those of you who are in business are are set free to use your skill, have business thinking about how to employ the most people in our neighborhoods as possible. How to start businesses that are sustainable and productive and don't abuse people. Those of you who are in finance are are set free. You don't have to defend yourself, define yourself. You're set free to think about what it means to invest well, to invest other people's money well. To think about the the money that you're making and accumulating for yourself. What are you going to do with that? How are you going to use that? How are you going to set that free to bless and heal the world? Those of you who are artists, those people who I don't totally understand, but I know God speaks to you. I just don't understand what he's saying all the time to you. But you're set free. You don't have to defend your art. You don't have to explain your art all the time. You get to, to, to use your art. To help the world see a side of God we don't normally see. To use your art to break through the bleak world that so many people experience. Say, no, there's beauty. There's beauty. There's beauty. There's justice. There's truth. You get to help us as a church know what it means to worship a beautiful God. A creative God. A powerful God. 
And on and on the list goes. When you and I are set free from our ego, set free from the need to defend ourselves, define ourselves, we don't have to spend any time thinking about that, any emotional energy on that anymore. We simply get to throw ourselves fully into the beautiful work of God in our world. And what Mary and the disciples testify to is that there is no better way to live. Amen? Worship team, come on up. There's a second way that we can know There's a second way that we can know whether or not we are living as strangers to God or whether we have accepted friendship with God through Jesus. And it's this. We don't ignore strangers. The first one is that we no longer have to define or defend ourselves. The second way that we can know we are no longer strangers to God as if we no longer label other people strangers. You see, when somebody is a stranger, I don't have to think about them. I don't have to care about them. I don't have to invest my life in their lives. I don't have to identify with them. When somebody has that label stranger on them, I am free to just pass them by. Would you agree? But you see, those of us who are no longer strangers to God no longer get to use that label stranger for anybody else. One of my mentors, a woman named Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, she she spoke recently about the the Trayvon uh, murder that happened a few weeks ago down in Florida. And about uh, Trayvon Martin, she, she said that one of the great tragedies of this whole experience is that it shows culturally our lack of identification with each other. That we are strangers to each other. She said, what if, imagine for a moment, she said, what if this was your son? How would you talk about this? What if this was your grandson? What if this was your nephew? What if this was your cousin? What if this was your brother? How would you talk about this? How would you experience this? And what she's getting at is identification. Right? I identify with the people I know. If I know Kim and she's going through something hard, I identify with her. Would you agree? But if she's a stranger to me, it doesn't matter what she's going through, I can ignore it. I don't have to care. I don't have to get involved. Christians are people who no longer have access to the label stranger. Because we are no longer strangers to God. We we are people who are called now to identify with everyone who our world has labeled as a stranger. Why? Because in Jesus, God identified with us. Those who are ignorant of him. Those who are were opposed to him, those who lived as his enemies, he came and identified with and said, you are my friends. And so we no longer get to think about individuals or groups of people as strangers. Now let me say this. We can still be strange to each other. Would you agree? I mean, let's just be, let's just be honest, right? 
In fact, I would say we need to still maintain our strangeness. You see, being a multi-ethnic church doesn't mean that that we kind of whitewash everything and everybody starts talking the same and acting the same and pretending like we come from the same place, right? We maintain our strangeness. No, I come from here. This is my history. This is my background. These are my people. This is my story. I bring that with me, and it's going to seem strange to you. That's okay. Because you kind of seem strange to me, too. The beauty of the gospel is that this strangeness... This is, this, is, this is what God is doing. This is evidence of God's, uh, uh, the reality that, that though we were strange to our Savior, he would not allow us to be strangers to him. You see? So, so, so be strange. Show me your strangeness. <laughs> Invite me into your story that seems strange, that I don't know, that I've not experienced. I need that. We will not be strangers to each other. But you see, it doesn't just exist in here either. It exists for those of us who are Christians out there because there are people who our world has labeled stranger. I don't have to think about you. I can marginalize you. I can assume things about you. And Christians are people who say no. 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 We will not do that because our God does not do that. We will not talk that way because that is not how our God thinks about us. We will not live that way because we were strangers to God and he made sure there was nothing, nothing, nothing that would keep us as strangers to him. Amen? So, is God a stranger to you? Or is God a friend? This, is, this, is, this was the, the thing that Mary had to encounter with Jesus when she realized, oh, I didn't know you were a stranger to me. But now, now I see. So she could live in a very radically different way. Do you strive to defend and to define yourself or do you know the love and the acceptance of God so that you are free to pursue God's healing for Do you ignore and marginalize the strangers in your life, in our world? Or has your friendship with God destroyed that dehumanizing category from your heart? I I, I love this little detail in the story today. Um, Do you notice when it is that Mary recognizes who Jesus is? You see, with, the, with the, other, the, other, the other stories, it's a little bit more dramatic, right? With the seven disciples, uh, they had to catch a bunch of fish. Like, oh, something weird is going on. And with the other two, they, they had to walk all day long with Jesus. And then this very powerful, symbolic moment, the breaking of the bread, the pouring of the wine. Oh, it's Jesus. But do you see when it comes with Mary? It's when Jesus says her name. That's all. He just says, Mary. And something, something, I don't know, I don't know. In his voice, in that moment, in the Holy Spirit's presence, I don't know. But something in that moment when Jesus says just her name, just her name, she knows. She knows who he is and she worships. God knows your name. However you're living as a stranger to God or not, 
however you've experienced God as a stranger or not, God knows your name. God speaks your name, not as a stranger to you. God speaks your name, my name, as our Savior, as our Lord. What does Jesus say to his disciples? Now, I'm your friend. What does Jesus say at the end of this passage? My Father is now your Father. Jesus speaks your name, church, this morning, not as an enemy, not as a stranger as a father, as a friend. So the invitation for us this morning is to answer. And the way you answer will be the, the way, uh, a different way than I answer. Mary, Mary cries out, teacher! It's weak. Peter throws himself out of the boat. We don't have a boat here this morning, but you know, you get the idea. The other two disciples are just in amazement that this was Jesus. How do you respond to Jesus calling your name this morning? Knowing that God is no longer a stranger to you. Knowing that there is a way of living as a friend of God that will radically reorient how you live in this world. That, that, that's the invitation this morning. We're going to worship and I ask that you consider the God who knows your name. The God who is not a stranger to you. Some of you this morning, I want to invite you to stick around afterwards. If if you don't know if God is a friend or a stranger to you, I would love to talk to you after the service. One of our leaders, one of our prayer team folks would love to talk to you after the service about that. Others of us, we've we've walked with Jesus for a long time. We're looking at our lives right now and we're going, ah, I defend myself all the time. All the time I'm defending myself. I label so many people as strangers. So, So the invitation today, again, again. God knows your name. God knows your name and is inviting you into friendship. So what do you need to walk away from? What do you need to set aside? What do you need to accept so that you live out of the reality of an empty cross and an empty tomb? Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. We realize uh, again this morning, Lord Jesus, that uh, there was nothing that we could have done. There's nothing that we could do on our own to search you out to find you. We we would would always make you over in our own image. We would always make you into a God who is comfortable, who is safe to us, who advances our own priorities. So we thank you. We thank you for searching for us. We thank you that the cross is this moment where everything that would seek to keep us far from you, to keep us as a stranger to you, is destroyed, is defeated. We thank you for this grace, God. I pray for my friends today who who haven't known that, who haven't tasted that grace in their lives, who haven't accepted friendship with God. I pray this morning that they would take a step towards you, that they would take a step towards you today and trust that you, in fact, are good, that you, in fact, have been searching for them. For others of us who are now aware that we've been living not as friends of God, but as strangers to God. Empower us today. Empower us today with the power of your Holy Spirit to live as your friends 
to live as if the, the cross truly is empty, the grave truly is empty. So that we no longer diminish or ignore anyone as a stranger. And we cease to define and defend ourselves so that instead we can throw ourselves into the beautiful, amazing, sometimes terrifying work that you are about in this world. In Jesus' name we pray. Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.